Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired to create a deeper life to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Nancy Saltzman. Nancy's an Indiana Hoosier who now calls Colorado her home after living in the state for 47 years. Saltzman is likely to be found most mornings hiking in the Colorado Springs foothills with her two dogs, Nacho and Macy. She enjoys reading, taking pictures, listening to James Taylor songs, keeping in touch with friends, visiting family, and laughing with her husband of two years, uh, of two years, period. (laughs) Dr. Salzman holds a PhD in education from the University of Denver, was recognized as Colorado's National Distinguished Principal, and received the American Cancer Society's Sword of Hope during her 32-year career as a teacher and administrator. She's the author of the best-selling memoir, Radical Survivor, and is a much-sought-after inspirational speaker about love after loss and resilience. Welcome, Nancy. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. Happy to have you. And I was very interested in um, uh, uh, when I when I received your bio, when I read it, that you start with um, all the personal things about you, and the and the kind of businessy world things came last. <laughs> Does that have any meaning? <laughs> um. I think it tells you a little bit about me and what's important. Not that my professional life isn't or wasn't important, but definitely the other things are equally important. Mm-hmm. And sometimes when you read a brief bio, it can be kind of dry. So this one I was trying to make a little more interesting. <laughs> well, and also because the the impacts in your life are are so deep and so personal it it feels in line to me with with your book which is so um open and disclosing oh well, thank you i thought we'd start just by sharing with the readers uh a little bit about um what what brought you to write a book called um you know about radical survivorship I guess right uh, uh, you you experienced not just one but a series of very crushing events can you share with the listeners uh, some of that sure um, I'll start a little bit before I started having bad things happen to me I grew up in a family in Bloomington Indiana where both my parents were professionals they were psychologists Uh, My father was the chairman of the psychology department at Indiana University, and I had an older sister and two younger brothers, and it was the kind of childhood where you actually get to ride your bike around the neighborhood. We would ride over to Indiana University, and it was a really pretty idyllic growing up, and we had lots of friends and um, lots of good experiences and a lot of fun, and my parents had very high expectations for us, for how we behaved, how we interacted with people, um, 
also with just getting an education and doing something really productive with our lives. We'd watch them do that and watch their friends do that. So we all knew we would go to college, and that was when you mentioned I'd been in Colorado for many years, 47 years. It's because when I graduated from high school, I wanted to move someplace other than Indiana because one is I'd heard about Colorado College in Colorado Springs, and they had a wonderful program where you would take one class at a time instead of mm. typical number of classes for a semester. And they had a great program for people who wanted to be teachers, which I knew I always wanted to be. And I wanted to live in a climate that was really dry so that my hair wouldn't be so curly because of the humidity. So uh, luckily I <laughs> The was reasons people to... choose colleges, right? I know, exactly. <laughs> Never ask an 18-year-old where they want to go to school. Uh, so my parents, of course, supported all of us as far as where we wanted to go to school because they had such a high value for it. And so they supported me coming to Colorado to go to Colorado College. And I did end up graduating with a degree in teaching and had a really wonderful experience in college. I got a teaching job in Colorado Springs, continued my education, got a master's in uh, special education and decided that I wanted to get a PhD program and go to a PhD program. And so I pursued my educational goals. And meanwhile, I had met this wonderful man who owned a tennis shop and we got married. And there were a lot of stories around that that we don't have time for. But um, so we had a, we got married. And by the time we got married, I was close to 30. So we decided to have children, and we just pretty much had this uh, great life. I was married to the love of my life. I was able to have two children. I had finished my PhD and was working in education and just really had a pretty terrific life. And the only probably big challenge that I'd had was uh, earlier in like 1975, my father had been diagnosed with prostate cancer, but at that time he had treatment and they thought that they got it all. So although that was kind of a scare, it was really the only challenge that I was faced with outside of kind of ordinary things that we're faced with growing up. And it wasn't until I was actually an assistant principal at a middle school that I discovered that I had breast cancer. And so I was 38, and that's very young to be initially diagnosed with cancer, And so that was extremely frightening, but I was able to, with the support of my family and my uh, children and my husband, who made a lot of fun of me, um, we had a lot of humor in our relationship, I was able to go through the surgery for breast cancer and then um, survive that. And then after that happened, right away I got a job as a principal at an elementary school in Colorado Springs. And so now I had my dream job. I had, you know, beat cancer and I had this wonderful family. And then what happened was two years after having the cancer, I had a reoccurrence of breast cancer actually on the same side as my mastectomy, which was even more frightening actually. So they treated it as a stage four cancer. And so at that time, I had chemo and radiation, and they'd recommended hysterectomy. So by the time I was 40, I'd had breast cancer twice, um, had gone totally bald, but I was able to keep working and 
by then I was a principal at an elementary school. I guess I said that. And then I had this great job and I wanted to model for my own kids that I could overcome these challenges. So I again felt like, wow, I've overcome this. I've had the support of my family and uh, just how incredible I was to still be alive and be married and happy and Mm. have so many of my dreams come true. And one of the things my husband loved to do was go to tennis tournaments. And so he decided in 1995, he had a friend who said, if I rent a small plane, would you like to fly to Las Vegas to go to the Davis Cup tennis tournament? And he said yes, and he came home and he said, the boys and I are going to go to Las Vegas, and we're going to go watch the Davis Cup tennis tournament. And I was really busy at work, and I said, that sounds great, until I realized that it was going to be Seth's 11th birthday. So I said, well, I want to go. There's no room on the plane for me to go, so I got a commercial flight. I went to Las Vegas, met them there, had this incredible weekend where everything was just wonderful. And then at the end of the weekend, I had to fly home on my commercial flight, and they were coming home on the small plane, and I got home safely and everything, but they actually, when they were flying home, they flew into an ice storm in Colorado, and the plane crashed, and my husband, my two sons, the pilot and his wife, all died the night that they were flying back. And so then, of course, I was faced with... What next? So, and and uh, you know, I um, unimaginable. Right. I mean, when something like that, I suppose cancer. It, it's hard to imagine cancer too, but not at the you same that, <laughs> depth. Right. <laughs> um, right, you and I don't think even even I who um, you know I'm. I'm, I've had many losses, many deep losses. The ones that have not been experienced can't be imagined, right. I find, for me anyway. And right. so I'm sure before that you couldn't have imagined. No, absolutely. Um, I think when I had cancer the first time, I couldn't imagine having that and then having it a second time. And then having faced my own mortality, I certainly had never, ever thought that Joel would predecease me. We always made the assumption, of course, that I would die before anybody else because just the likelihood of that happening. Right. Uh, right. And no, no, in fact, the night that I came home and started getting the phone calls from the people in emergency services because they were looking for the plane, when I got the first call and he said, we can't find your husband's plane, um, and he said, well, are you religious? And I'm like, why? And he said, because you need to have somebody sitting with you. And I'm thinking, okay. And so I call my friend. I never let myself think, oh, they might die. Mm. I thought, well, they might be hurt somewhere, and I will go pick them up. I never you'll, thought. You'll rush to wherever die. they are. Right. We're going to go get them. So, no, I, I couldn't imagine it. And now even sometimes I think, I tell the story and I think about it and how my life has gone and it's still hard to believe that in fact it happened. I'm not saying I don't believe it, I know it happened, but sometimes I think, really? That really happened? Well, um, yes, and I was was interested in the book actually that um, you had a very deep desire to be with their, their bodies 
which mm-hmm. I would say only partially got met <laughs> because, right. you know, I, I've thought many times that the time I spent with my wife, uh, with her body after she died really mm-hmm. helped me, actually. I don't know right. if that's true for everybody, but I never, I, I was so clear, you know. <laughs> um, right. So more cells of my body got it because of that experience. Right. Well, right, because they brought the bodies back, but they and but they had them wrapped up because they were kind of like mummies. Because I mm. think there were so I I did actually see some pictures which I asked to see because they took pictures of their bodies after the crash, kind of to do what you said where you. It doesn't really make sense, and so to actually see their bodies, but more importantly, to have been able to sit with the bodies, and I did, but they, I couldn't really see them because they were all wrapped yeah. up, except yes. Seth, whose face was open to the, and it was not wrapped up his face, but I think they were trying to protect me from seeing their damaged bodies from the plane crash, but I do think... That is a really important part, although you said the key thing, which was it's different for everyone. Some people might want to do that. Some people wouldn't want to, I guess. Yes, absolutely. But, yeah, I, right. I, I always want to say that because, you know, loss is such an individual. It's our most right. um, unique, um, the, the most unique thing we do in a way. Right. Grief. I agree. And so, and, go ahead. No, and, and even the way, like, when I tell my story and other people think about it, they'll say to me, well, I couldn't have survived that. I couldn't have gone through that. Um, and, of course, my thought always is, well, you, I'm not sure what your choice is. I mean, I guess your choice is you cannot go through it <laughs> and not continue to live yourself. Mm-hmm. Um the difference is going to be maybe how you go through it. So Yes. Mm-hmm. Agreed. You know, one thing that really stood out in your book is you were able to go back into your life before these things happened. And mm-hmm. I felt really capture what life was like before, which can be really hard when you know what happens later. Right. <laughs> to, oh, yeah. To, uh, it's kind of bad. You know from the beginning something bad is going to happen because you already right, know what but, happens, right? Yes, but a a really good example of that was uh, the section of your book where you talked about having your first child, and I just want to give the readers a little sense, you know, of how how deeply you you captured life before. Can you share that? Yes, I would love to share that. Okay, my glasses on. Okay, (laughs) so um, it was midnight. I started having contractions a few hours earlier. They were now five minutes apart, and I put on my maternity clothes for the last time. Joel turned me towards him and looked me in the eyes. He held me for a brief moment. We were excited and scared. The 280Z was flirting with the speed limit all the way to the hospital. My contractions were getting closer together by the minute, or at least that's how they felt. Once at the hospital, the nurse said I was 8 centimeters dilated, only 2 from the promised land of 10 centimeters and being able to push. The doctor arrived and Joel and I started the breathing techniques we'd learned in our class, techniques that would help with the pain, techniques that, much to my surprise, made absolutely no difference. It now felt like someone was repeatedly sticking a knife in my belly. 
them pulling it out, but my labor was too far along for me to have pain medications. Finally, the magic 10 centimeters. My delivery nurse was a former midwife from Germany, and I was thrilled to hear she'd done this many times before. Nancy, push. I pushed. Zupa pushing, Nancy, zupa pushing. I managed a tortured giggle between contractions. At 3.37 a.m. on October 5, 1982, 7-pound, 14-ounce Adam William Herzog was born. The first thing he heard was, It's a boy! It's a boy! It's a boy! It's a boy! That was Joel. I said, So, I guess you wanted a boy? <laughs> so, you didn't know till that moment if he had no, a preference. No, we didn't. Well, you know, it was then, um, so he was born in 1982, and at that time they didn't do ultrasound or any of the kinds of things that let you know what the sex of the baby was. It wasn't until more recently, I think, that they've started doing that routinely. Yes, absolutely. And so, you know, the joy in that just comes through so Great. profoundly. And um, we're, we're, it's almost time for a break. But okay. um, I would love to talk with you when we get back about the sense I have that you maintain the experiences of your joy with them now, that that's somehow laced inside of your radical survivorship. Does that resonate with you? Yes, very much so. So let's talk about that more when we get back. And listeners, okay, you'll find you'll find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America to like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, connect on LinkedIn, etc. And you can sign up for my email list there too. To find Nancy Saltzman, go to www.nancysaltzman.com. Be back soon. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Relationship issues, anxious, parenting challenges, no more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. 
To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Nancy Salzman, the author of Radical Survivor. And Nancy, before the break, we just began to touch on this uh, thing I felt so much in your book that your uh, your husband and kids were very alive to me. And I, f- I felt it was because you re-entered those experiences that you had with them, and it made me think, you know, that those relationships have continued in some form which is which is something I was saying during the break I'm very um, you know keen on talking about uh, especially since doing this show because it it seems so um, important in terms of people's uh, um, ongoing healing when when losses have happened can you speak to that a bit well sure um I do feel like I've continued to have a relationship with Joel, Adam, and Seth since they died. And not the kind where they, you know, come to my bedroom and talk to me or I see them floating around or something like that. But it's in the memories of them and talking Mm. about them with other people or uh, looking at pictures and just thinking about maybe what would have happened or what they would be doing now. And in writing the book, it was wonderful because it actually gave me time to sit and think about them and write about them and be able to share their personalities with other people and kind of just wallow in that wonderful mm-hmm. feeling about being with them. And, of course, some of that was hard, too, because then you end up really missing who they were. But, sure. I, I, you know, I do feel like I've continued to have a relationship with them for sure. Yeah, I, you know, when uh, my personal uh, relationship to that, the first big one, of course, was my wife dying, and um, I, I guess the way I was describing it to myself at at the time was um, that she had moved to another country. I had some dreams like that. Oh wow! <laughs> Where she had, oh. she had moved to another country. She now. Um, you know, spoke a different language. We were trying to communicate over this <laughs> great chasm. <laughs> One oh time I dreamed that, that she was a, um, in the dream, she was a gay man. And when oh I woke up, I thought, I thought, well, the least likely person for me to have a relationship with. Right? Oh, that's hysterical. <laughs> oh, well, so, about a year after Joel, after the plane crash, after they died, I got a, Visa bill or a MasterCard bill or something, and on it was a charge for a dating service in California. And, of course, we live in Colorado. I'm like, he's been alive all this time, and he's dating somebody in California? That's crazy. And, of course, it was a bizarre charge. But I think maybe that was just him sending me a message, you know, being funny. Ha ha. Uh-huh. Did he think <laughs> it was time for you to start signs, dating, signs Nancy? Like so, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so that's and that's an interesting thing too because um most people have these ideas or lots of people do anyway that they get messages 
Mm-hmm. But people tend to refrain from talking about it because they don't want their friends to think they're nuts or, you know, right. delusional. Or <laughs> but it's well, you and I have a you and I have a friend. In fact, you've interviewed him, Tom Zuba, and I've heard Tom say he's talked a lot about signs and how great they are to get. And you're right that some people might think we're crazy, but as he said, what is the downside of thinking you're getting a sign? There's only an upside. It's really exciting to think that you're getting a sign or a message from somebody who's no longer here on Earth with us, but it's kind of exciting to think that, well, maybe, in fact, they are sending you a funny message by, you know, having a bill on your, for a dating service on your credit card bill. (laughs) And beyond that, even if you are absolutely opposed to the idea that they may in some way still exist, you're activating your um the place in you where they live oh i love that uh, yes i would agree you with know, that that because anyone we've we've been deeply connected to lives in us um right i i, I certainly still hear my mother in my head and my father very often sure. too you know right uh, right we, we know them well enough that whether it's metaphysical or psychological it's real I agree. Yeah. So I want to talk some about resiliency now because okay. um, you, uh, of course, when you use an expression for your book, um, through the name of the, the book, Radical Survivor, mm-hmm. you know, there's a certain grit there, uh, <laughs> you know, a certain resiliency, in fact. And uh, I think you talked pretty fully about the ways in which your particular family um, encouraged that or um, fostered it. Um, also, I was, I was really quite moved many times in the book by um, the fairly unusual experience, I'd say, that we might say your community and your family, the people around you in your life, had a pretty good level of emotional intelligence before because they pretty quickly were sending you messages that uh, both about the cancer and about um, the plane crash that I considered quite um, powerfully empathic. Yeah, Is that how I you experienced it? So... Um, I think you're right, and I think that they shared their feeling with me, and they shared their encouragement with me, and one of the things that I like best about my book is that I was able to include a lot of letters that people wrote to me through pretty much all the experiences that I had in my life, and just the encouragement that I got from these messages, phone calls, letters gave me the hope and the strength to keep going if I ever felt like, oh, gosh, I just can't get up today. And um, I don't know, would it be okay if I read a letter? Absolutely. Um, Okay. There's one about your cancer that really touches me a lot. Well, great. Uh, I'll read that. So this letter is written by a friend of my brother's. I have two brothers, but my brother, Rob, and it was written by Rand Schrader, who's a close friend of my brother who actually had AIDS. And so he knew a lot about what he was talking about with an illness. And here's the letter. Dear Nancy, 
Rob has told me of the ordeal you are facing with the recurrence of cancer. My own experience of illness has made me realize what one assumes everyone would already know. It's frightening and very challenging physically and emotionally to be sick. We really bring all of ourselves to a crisis, and you have great strength and maturity to use in this battle. While the chemotherapy and radiation battle the cancer, you have the tremendous battle of making the most of your life during a painful and difficult time. I don't think I understood what a great attitude meant until I was sick. I didn't understand the temptation to give up or the exhilaration of surviving with my humor and some joy in life intact. Your family will help you, I know. Well, good luck. Don't hesitate to complain. Remember, getting through this is what counts not being the perfect patient, fondly, Rand. And I love that letter so much because um, when he says at the end, don't hesitate to complain, remember getting through this is what counts. We so many times try to protect other people from our challenges and what we're going through and tell people, oh, I'm fine, I don't need anything. And sometimes we just have to say, I'm not really doing fine and I need some support. This is what I need. Can you give that to me? And it really, that Absol- letter really spoke to me that way. That That's such a, a blessing thing to hear. I, I do uh, cancer, uh, women with cancer groups. I run oh, them, wow. facilitate them. And I, I call, uh, I have this phrase, the tyranny of the good attitude. Because I think what people take that to mean is that you have to be saying happy things. You have to be right. thinking happy things. Right. And uh, that's not what it means to me at all. So I love the way that he brought in complaining as part of a good attitude. Isn't that great? <laughs> I, I just love it. And and to have that message, um, you know, when you're, when you're trying to sort it out yourself and to feel the voice of experience uh, saying, you know, find some joy, find some something to to believe in, and also complain. Right. Do it. <laughs> you know, it's just right. so wonderful. Right. There's there's this comedian out here. Her name is Joanne Lulin, and um, she had breast cancer. And I heard uh, when my wife was sick. This was a long time ago. Now she did a a comedy night that we went to, and she said, "Everybody's telling me to have a good attitude. I don't know about you, but somehow." Breast cancer doesn't improve my attitude. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, that's great! Oh my you know, gosh! And oh. and meanwhile, she was funny. She was lively. She was there. She just didn't need to say everything was fine. Right. So that's, I feel that's such a such a dramatically important point for people yes, in, in all kinds of difficulty and losses, isn't it? Yeah. And it sounds and I, as if you took that you in. Know, I know people say things. Like, um, I'm glad I had cancer because it made me really appreciate what I have. And I respect them saying that, but I don't feel that way. I feel like when bad things happened to me, I made some reason out of what happened. I don't feel like there's a reason for everything that happens. You make the reason after Mm -hmm. it happens. Um, And so it's kind of all along that same line of, we are going to make the best of what happens, but like you said, we are going to get to complain along the way and then figure yes. out how to make it really make a difference for other people. What what to do with it. I, that's yeah. the, 
that's the thing I love about the people who study post-traumatic, post-traumatic growth. Uh, mm-hmm. If you know that point of view, that they they really emphasize it's not the trauma that results in growth; it's the struggle with the trauma. Right. It's it's what we come to make of it, or um, uh, what meaning comes out of it. And I agree with you completely. I'm I'm always intent to <laughs> to say that myself because it seems. You know, for me, it would be so odd to say something like, "I'm I'm um, glad my wife died because I grew so much." I, right. I just I can't uh, get there. That's not me. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm not glad. I'm right. I'm really not glad she died, but I no. am glad that I found the meaning from it that I found. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it I sounds agree. like we have something in common there. <laughs> yeah. Um, and what else would you say, you know, the, the other thing I noticed in the book that I just want to really remark on is that uh, the the people around you professionally let you write the story. Uh, oh, right. It, you know, they, they let you come to work and stay as long as you could and then go and then, you know, <laughs> there was a flexibility in that that so many people don't have and I make that, I think that makes it so much harder. Oh, I agree. I was, I went back to work a week after the plane crash and of course for me, I think that was really important in my growth uh, to feel like I had a place to go where I was needed and wanted and where I could model for the kids at school what you do when something really bad happens to you. But the incredible thing to me was that all of my teachers found out about the plane crash on Sunday night, Sunday in the middle of the night, and they all came to work the next day. And they worked that whole week when I wasn't there. And they provided support for all of the students, uh, and they were having to provide support for six-year-olds through 12-year-olds and for each other. Um, And just when I think back on that, just how incredible they were as a group of people. And, I mean, nobody took any work off that week. Mm. And to me... That's amazing because they knew my kids. Both my kids had gone to my school and um, they knew my husband. And so they were deep in grief but doing their job. So then when I went back to work, they were there for me. I was there for them. Uh, but what you, what you said is you could see in some situations where maybe your boss would say, well, we don't want her coming back because she's going to be not good to be around. It's going to be too hard. And they just... They kind of followed my lead. I mean, they weren't exactly sure what was best either. And they wanted to do what was best for the school, best for me, best for the kids, best for the community. And uh, luckily, the way we did it worked out great. And I've I've certainly heard from, after doing the book, and I've had students who are now adults read it and contact me and say, just watching you and watching how you dealt with that situation taught me so much. And I've been able to face challenges on my own uh, because of watching you. I've had losses and challenges. So it was kind of a, let's try it and see how it works. And if it hadn't worked, I'm sure they would have 
I would have realized and taken off or they would have said, ah, we don't think it's working. <laughs> but yes. I was, I feel incredibly lucky that I had that community and a reason to get up every day. Other than, of course, I had to get up and feed my dogs. But right. uh, to have a place to go where everybody was going through the grief process and we learned together. And this was probably one of the most traumatic things that ha- has happened to most of the people who were there at the time, even today. Uh, to lose two friends yes. and their dad, and so yes. But well, you're, I think you're right. what you're I, I think what you're saying is so important because um, what I've uh, I've encountered a lot of you know children experiencing grief, and mm. uh, I I find they can handle it, but not if there's some sense that they can't handle it. Right. And <laughs> right. oh. if that makes sense, if they're yes. being surrounded by this is oh, kids can't handle this, then it gets um, kind of contracted and difficult. But I think kids can, in fact, if it's modeled and what you got an opportunity to do together, all of you as a community was realistically and emotionally model um going through hard things. Right. And they. The, I think the other thing that was important to me was that the kids at my school and the parents and the teachers felt comfortable or at least felt okay to be able to ask me questions. How was I doing? The kids, of course, asked questions about Adam and Seth and about the plane crash and did they know they were going to die and what did I think? And I... To me, what was so important was that they understood that talking about it was important. It didn't make it worse. It just made us be able to move forward and talk about it, our feelings, um, missing them, giving them permission to talk about people they cared about and learning that that's okay to do. I'm sure you know, you've, I think, I, I'm I guessing think, you've had people say to you, well, I didn't say anything to you about your wife because I didn't want to remind you that that she had died. Yeah, well, <laughs> like, here's yeah, the we thing. Much don't ever forget. <laughs> we, we, we don't forget. It. We don't forget. And I understand they're trying to be sensitive, but our, my preference would be that they would bring it up so that we could talk and remember yeah, them are, as opposed to pretend like they didn't yes. exist. Let's come, or, let's come back and talk about that more because that's okay. just a key point in my, in my mind. Uh, and while we're on the second break, listeners out there, you can go to my website, weatheringgrief.com, two Gs. To find Nancy Saltzman, you can go to www.nancysaltzman.com. Back after the break. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. 
We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I'm here with Nancy Salzman, author of Radical Survivor, and we were we were touching on before the break, Nancy. Um, you know, people not wanting to bring up your loved one as if you would somehow have forgotten or not want to talk about it, that they would increase your pain. Um, I think I was uh, strangely lucky that um, you know anyone who might have believed such a thing. By the time 10 years of illness had gone by, we had pretty much disavowed them of that. (laughs) And so I did feel kind of fortunate I didn't get too much of that. Um, It's kind of more common when people um, have never, you know kind of sorted through in themselves what what might be helpful but uh one thing i was thinking as we as you were talking about that was how helpful it was to me when people expressed their own emotions about what was happening for instance i i'd go somewhere um you know, a couple months in, I'd go somewhere and my wife's picture would be on the refrigerator. And mm-hmm. and um, uh, her picture was on a lot of refrigerators. She was just that, that kind of person. And um, whoever it was would say, uh, I don't know if that's painful or not, but I just can't take it down. Oh, well, I love that. You know, and that would be like like water in the desert. Somebody right. else was remembering deeply as well. I, I wasn't agree. alone. Uh, and that had so much meaning for me. Uh, maybe you have some experiences like that too. Well, in, t- in terms of your book, many experiences of people sharing memories and sharing uh, what your family meant to them. That's correct. The letters are incredible. The stories, oh, I'd get the letter, and there would be a story about Joel or Adam or Seth that I didn't know. So I would get to read this whole funny story or sweet story about them that I had never even heard. And then by the same token, it was great to read stories that I knew something about, but then got to hear it again. And just this last week, so this the plane crash happened uh, almost 22 years ago. And just last week, I spoke at a Rotary luncheon and just talked about what had happened in overcoming tragedy and uh, how to move forward in resiliency. 
And afterwards, a young man came up and said, oh, I knew your husband, and I just loved going into the tennis shop, and he always told such great jokes, and I just enjoyed knowing him. So even almost 22 years later, it just made me feel so great to hear that his personality is living on in all of these people uh, still, and it made me feel great. What is there's a saying sometimes it can be said a little flippily which is not my intention but um a person hasn't died until no one remembers them I think it is mm. um, oh wow right uh, that there's some sense that all these people especially um, you know your husband my wife were uh, the lovable types, right? Right. <laughs> they yes. cast, they they cast a wide humor, net. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So um, there's the there's even a more intense sense of remembrance, um, maybe traveling outward. Um, you know, a friend a friend of mine, um, her daughter has just been diagnosed with cancer, and she was part of our community back then, mm-hmm. and we were talking about that experience being central to how she's trying to handle what's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just that that way that our experiences impact each other. Yes. I agree. And let's talk a little bit about what you actually, you do a lot of speaking, and um, I know you've, uh, done a TED talk on resiliency. Yes, uh, you know, obviously, um, Colorado Springs sponsored uh, the TEDx talks, and so I was able to tell my story and offer people hope that they could too overcome something that we all think we would not be able to overcome. And that actually was, uh, that was just really exciting to be able to do that and to be able to share the story. And I've Mm. learned a lot about resilience from my own life, of course, and then writing the book to try to figure out what made a difference for me and maybe some of the, just some of the things that might help others as they're trying to overcome some some big challenges. And I would it be okay if I read one more thing from the book? We have time? Of course. Absolutely. I have in here, uh, toward the end of the book, I wrote, there is no tragedy quota, no immunity. Each time something bad happens, I call on the tools I was born and raised with and the lessons I've learned to help get me through. But most important, because I now have some experience with bad things happening, I try to share what I've learned with others going through their own trials. My tools may not suit others. My lessons may be different. But here's the secret. The simple act of reaching out and holding a broken heart with care and love is the most powerful help and comfort anyone can ever offer. And that's something every single one of us can do. And I really think that's true is that I do think Sometimes it is really hard to reach out to people who are struggling and having a hard time because we are afraid we're going to say the wrong thing Mm -hmm. or somehow we just aren't going to handle it very well ourselves. And I think we know from our losses that the most important thing is to show up and that that, some of the most powerful experiences for me when people just came to my house to sit with me because we can't take the sadness away we can't make the sad thing go away 
but I can come sit with you and we can be quiet or you can tell me about your wife or we can not even talk about it, but the actual showing up and being there for somebody has such a huge impact. Absolutely. I've been recommending this book by an author I interviewed a little while ago um, for if people really are stuck about what to say. It's a great book for that. It's called oh. It's called There Is No Good Card for This. Uh, <laughs> oh my it's, gosh it's one of the writers actually is a graphic designer who who developed something called empathy cards yeah uh, you'd probably appreciate i've mentioned this on the show before uh an example would be uh i promise not to talk about your journey unless someone's bought you a cruise uh, <laughs> things like that uh, oh my you know, gosh let, let oh, me be the first terrific. one to punch the next person who says it happened for a reason you know just oh. just really uh, <laughs> turn on their heads thing anyway it's quite a good book about um, what's helpful and not helpful to say but their bottom line is say you don't know what to say Right. That's okay. I don't know Isn't what to that, say. A lot of the cards that I got <laughs> from people started with that. There are no words to express how I feel and what I'm thinking. And then, of course, they went on and used these beautiful words to express a lot of things that were terrific. But, mm-hmm. yes, why not just say I'm not sure what to say? Well, I think once you say that, you're liberated to say what's in your own heart instead right. of trying to offer words that you think will help. And right. that's the ticket, isn't it? Um, once yep. you've admitted you don't know what to say, it's possible to speak, isn't it? Yes. That's so funny. There is no good card for this. <laughs> there is no good card for this. Emily McDowell and um, Kelsey Crow. I think the other... The other author is a therapist who also had some very, um, Emily had uh, cancer, mm-hmm. and Kelsey also had cancer and had some other pretty um, significant traumatic losses, and um, it's, it's great. It's full of Emily's um, graphics. It's wow. extremely readable. There's a, a great p- page that's uh, all the different ways to not listen. <laughs> that's quite <fun>. so <laughs> okay I'm getting that book <laughs> yeah it's pretty great I, I I've been happy to pass it along to people um, because we're really talking about um, you know have you ever heard that saying we're all just walking each other home oh no um, wow. I, I love that too it's the same oh. idea we, we can just lump along together and and not know what we're doing because None of us really do, I think. Right. Yeah. So before we leave for the day, I would like to talk a little bit about loving again, because uh, you're married again, and I'm married again. And that's a very interesting thing to do when you know kind of that I feel so clear that um, someone um, eventually leaves someone unless you die together. Um, it's it's right. a very different experience to commit to someone under those terms, uh, really, really having experienced that. And uh, I wonder if you, you know, we don't have a lot of time left, but um, how did you, how do you think you uh, found the place for possibility about loving someone deeply again? 
I think it came from loving Joel deeply, that I knew what it was like to love and be loved, and it was definitely something that I wanted to have again. So I think I actively pursued that, Mm. and I just started meeting people, and now I don't think I was ready immediately, but I was certainly willing to meet people and kind of try them on and see what it was like and get to know them and see if I thought it would work. And it took me about eight years to find Greg. And then we actually dated and lived together for 11 years because I told him he was on probation. <laughs> <laughs> You've got to be a lot really it, good. <laughs> yeah. I think a lot of it really had to do with the fact that I had been loved and I wanted to have love in my life again. And I think also that I knew that if I had died, that Joel would find love again and I would have been really happy for him to fall in love again. And I felt like he would be really happy for me if I fell in love again and he would want me to be with somebody. And I love being in love. And in my case with um, Greg, he is his wife had died of breast cancer. And so he had some understanding of what it was like to be with someone who had experienced significant loss. Mm -hmm. So I think that we had that understanding and um, that in common. I don't think it's, and I think that was good in a sense for us, but I think you certainly could fall in love with someone who hadn't lost a partner as long as that person understood that you would be honoring and remembering and have a continuing relationship with the person who died. You know, that's an interesting point because I felt when I was, I've, I've been uh, remarried for, uh, my anniversary was actually yesterday, 19 oh, years. Um, <laughs> thank you. And um, I, what I, w- what I said in the first year that uh, we were together is um, I had I had kind of a um, built-in litmus test for maturity <laughs> because because there wasn't any way I hadn't I hadn't broken up with my wife who died you know right. I I didn't feel any need to get rid of her obviously our relationship was completely different we we were not earthly partners anymore but. I didn't feel any need to kind of oust her from my world. And so it took someone who had the security inside of themselves not to object to that. I agree. And right. and that's a that that indicates some other things that are very valuable as well. Right. <laughs> At least that's what I think. Does no, that I, I agree. A, yeah, I, yeah. I mean I still have pictures of my family in my home, not everywhere like I used to. Yeah. But, you know, I wrote that's, a book about them. Yeah, that's right. And you work, still work with it and look at what I do. So that's a yes. great place to leave it for the day. <laughs> and I want to thank great. you so much for being with me. Thank you. If you want to find Nancy Salzman and her book, go to nancysalzman.com. Next week, I'll have Bill Hayes, author of Insomniac City, which beautifully chronicles his move to New York while healing from the sudden death of his partner, his love affair with the city, and his other love affair with Oliver Sacks, the famous neurologist, at the end of his life. Oliver fell in love with Bill for the first time at 75. 
This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.